welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello, Note Doctors listeners. So today our very special guest is David Portillo. It's been a while since we've had an episode, but we've been kind of busy with school and life and all sorts of things. Um, but we are continuing on with our series on, you know, what do uh, music majors need in their music theory classroom? And today we're kind of talking with David because he is a professional opera singer. So thinking about, you know, what are our students who are wanting to go into those professional ranks? What are they going to be needing to do and talking with him? And he has such great advice and ideas on what he's been able to use in his own career from theory and oral skills. So Jen, tell us a little bit more about uh, David. Absolutely. So David is an American tenor. He was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas, and um, thought he was going to be a music educator, but ended up going into vocal performance. And now he has sung all over the world, including, um, let's see, Teatro Real in Madrid. He's done Opera Frankfurt. He's done um, Chicago Lyric Opera and even the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. So the first thing you should do is go listen to him sing on his website, which he gives at the end of this discussion. But David and I are longtime friends, and it was really, really fun to talk to him. He has some great tips for how music theory can be helpful for a, an active performing musician. I'm always learning new music. I'm constantly learning. And whether or not I'm sitting there like analyzing a fugue, I'm still using music there. I'm still using my education degree. I'm still using the things that I've, the, the tools that I had to learn back then. And it, uh, preparation, man, that's the, the big part of learning how to be a performer. So today our very special guest is David Portillo, a legitimate opera singer. He's the real deal. All right. And we're so excited uh, to t- talk with you, David, about probably your second favorite thing, which is music theory. But um... <laughs> it's on some list as second. Yeah. Right. right. And so we like to uh, start off uh, by asking our guests just a little bit about uh, their background and kind of how how they got into music. You know, where did you get your start? And, you know, is is being claimed as having a warm, sexy tenor in the Dallas Opera brochure. Um, warm, sexy tenor, is that what it says? That's what it is. I just got, <laughs> so people are listening, I just got the Dallas Opera brochure for the next season and I was flipping through and I'm like, I recognize that face and Dave Portillo <laughs> right there, Cosi Fantuti, all right? And that's how they describe you. You have been praised that's... for a warm, sexy tenor. So you've reached wow. pinnacle, uh, PG-13 opera realness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it looks like it's a period costume. So I guess it will be PG-13, nothing too, Maybe. too progressive. We'll <laughs> but uh, exactly. tell, us, tell us a little bit about how you got to where you're at now. I um, always sang growing up. I was in choir every, in every choir I had to be in. It was, was available. I was in it. My mom was a music teacher and she taught uh choral music and she taught piano and she taught um, voice and uh, everything possible at the Hispanic Baptist Theological Seminary in San Antonio, Texas, where I grew up. And so um, I just kept singing in choir, went to uh, went to choir in school. And then when I was finished, I thought, well, I'm going to become uh, the best choral director ever. And I wanted to be the next Robert Shaw. And then I got to my undergrad and I realized that I wasn't patient enough for that. And I had a lot of solos. So I was like, oh, let me go try this opera degree, right? Let me try a vocal performance degree at the University of North Texas, where I met Jen Weaver. And so I went to North Texas for two years and did a performance degree in opera. And um, uh, that's where I did a few roles and uh, really decided that I fell in love with 
the the repertoire, with the texts, with the stories, with being on stage, uh, which is another really fun thing about the job. And then I started doing all of the young artist program kind of tracks. So the next year I kind of uh, was shuffling around doing young artist programs in different places, including El Paso Opera, Cincinnati Opera, uh, Tulsa Opera. And then I went to the young artist program at Florida Grand Opera. And for three years, I was at the... Uh, kind of prestigious I say kind of prestigious it is very prestigious but I hate to say that I'm prestigious um I, I was in the opera center at the, the Ryan Opera Center at the Lyric Opera of Chicago for three years um which was a really great experience right before going freelance um and by that time I was I had turned 30 years old so it was time to make a decent living and support myself and <laughs> um I was really lucky just to go straight from school into performing, uh, but that is not everybody's path. And so I, I had a, a really uh, a, a great way to start into the opera world. I also sing concerts. I also sing recital. Um, and really I've been doing that for ever since school, which I'm so, so privileged to be able to say that that was my track and that I, I get to do this for a living. Um, yeah. And so I sing in all sorts of um, opera houses nowadays. <laughs> COVID kind of threw a wrench in a lot of things and um, but also really kind of uh, made things uh, stand out to be really great about this job. You know, I, I just came back um, from doing uh, Britain's A Midsummer Night's Dream in Opera Lille in France, in the north of France. And right now I'm in Cleveland, uh, a part, I'm a resident artist as a part of the Cleveland Institute of Music Festival, uh, Art Song Festival that goes on for a week uh, every uh, late spring into summer. And it's a magical kind of week long place where you work with a team of pianist and singer and we talk about art song and I'm giving a recital with a collaborator uh, pianist friend of mine Craig Terry incredible pianist and um, we're doing classes on Saturday uh, I'm very lucky to have this kind of these kind of balanced opportunities a little opera a little recital a little concerts and uh, that's uh, somehow I've managed to squeeze together a job <laughs> that's yep. my track <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great and i it's it's so funny so many of the people that we talk to music ed is the the thing that they're interested in first it's like that's what they want to do either it's um, a teacher or oftentimes it is a family member you know a parent you know my parents my, were musicians um that's what's kind of what gets us in there and that's like the as far as we see the our career in music as being this teacher role because that's what we encounter mm -hmm. but then it's not till we get to college right that we see oh there's all these other opportunities right out there beyond just teaching mm -hmm. i'm really lucky that i did grow up in a house where um i watched my mom prepare lessons you know lessons for um piano lessons and voice lessons and then she would prepare choral rehearsals and and then i got to go to those rehearsals and really watch her work and then when i went to school it was such a wonderful natural thing for me to want to be in a choir, which is very different for a little boy in San Antonio, Texas, in who is, you know, 12 years old. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to sing in the choir because I love to sight read. I love to use solfege. I love uh, to sing in front of people. Um, and then really, as I as I continue to get older, I realized that it takes a very special person. It takes a very special personality to uh, be in the classroom and really have that much um like i said patience there's a lot of creativity that you have to go through there's so many different changes and um i was i was i have to say i loved my student teaching but i also realized that part of the student teaching that i liked was being quote unquote on and being performative and being like trying to uh, make sure that people were always looking at me and i had the attention and i had uh um that I had this plan, like I, I, that I was curating an experience. And I also realized that performance did that in a much more natural way. <laughs> so, uh, and I didn't have to like discipline and all the other things that come along with being a, a teacher. So I'm, I'm very lucky that I did grow up around music teachers because it was invaluable to me as a performer because I learned how to be a performer when I was uh, just, you know, watching my mom, you know. That's amazing. I think Ben and I had similar experiences of 
well, I know I did of going to student teaching and being like, oh boy, I don't know that this is what I want to do. And I ended up still in the classroom, but just mm -hmm. at a different, at a different age level and not in front of an ensemble um, teaching, you know, just music theory. So um, student teaching, I learned a lot of those same things that what's fun about it is the people, the students themselves, and the kind of the being in front of someone, curating an experience, like you said, but that a lot of the other work was not the right fit for me. Right. The patience, right. the patience. And the, you know, being willing to have many five-year-olds hanging on you on the regular. Yes. That was like, oh, it's not, not great. College freshmen, they don't do that. So that, that works. Right. Exactly. You don't have to tell college freshmen how to, you know, line up in a line and sit down on no. a, a red piece of tape on the floor. Right. No. But in somehow fact, you, you have They to are never in a line. Like, unless no, they're right. getting, like, lunch or something, you know? <laughs> like they're just, Literally they hurting cats. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly, exactly. So can yeah, you tell no. us? Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Ben. No, I was going to say, I don't regret my music ed degree, not even a single mm -hmm. second of it. But I definitely yeah. knew in student teaching that it's just, it wasn't something I wanted to do long term. You know, I mean, I think it kind of hits a lot of us where some people in my class would come back, oh my gosh, I miss my students so much from sixth grade violin. And I was thinking to myself, it was a nice violin lesson, but it's really not my cup of tea kind of thing. And I wanted to kind of do more um, on the academic side and theory definitely was the spot for me, but I can see that. And I, you learn things conceptually about teaching. You learn things about how, I mean, all the instruments, how the voices, I mean, taking voice class for me was an eye-opening experience. I mean, you'd be surprised how much I didn't know about the voice. And when you're teaching theory, uh, lectures, you, you're using your voice a lot, you're singing a lot of things for them. I mean, in a certain way, theory majors should take a voice class. Um, you know, you could argue for that. So, but that was a class that I use a lot. I, I thought walking into it, oh, geez, you know, I'm just going to be a band teacher. Why am I even in this voice class? You know, I kind of blew it off in undergrad. But now I'm thinking, wow, that was so stupid to think. Um, but I, I use stuff for my music ed degree every single day. Uh, even though I'm not, you know, doing K to 12 instrumental, like my certification would, would tell you, you know. I think the fun thing yesterday, we, I was in a class of, of singers and um, pianists and they, it's a duo team and there was a Q&A sort of situation. And basically most of the questions were, how do you make a living doing this? You know, and I feel like every answer always ended up just always be learning like you're always going to learn and i think a lot of what i was doing when i was in my theory class was like once i get through this test or once i turn this thing in i'm done with this <laughs> and basically i'm realizing like i have to like i'm i'm always learning new music i'm constantly learning and whether or not i'm sitting there like analyzing a fugue I'm still using music theory. I'm still using my education degree. I'm still using the things that I've, the, the tools that I had to learn back then. And it, uh, preparation, man, that's the, the big part of learning how to be a performer, you know? Well, that's a good segue to ask you, what was your music theory experience like in college? Well, um, like I said, I just waited till I had to turn everything in and I was done. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> there was a lot of that. There was a lot of like catch up, you know, um, I, uh, so my, growing up, I grew up in the first Baptist church of San Antonio and, um, uh, the guy who was my music theory teacher for three of those years was the dad of one of my friends who I grew up with. And he was a great trumpet player at a high school nearby. And, um, so like Dr. Ballantyne was like just somebody I knew. And then I went to UTSA, UT San Antonio for my undergrad and, uh, basically like Dr. Valentine, my friend's dad was my theater, was my theory teacher. So then I was like, oh, this will be fine. You know, no, I definitely like had to learn a lot of stuff. I had to study. I had to actually like do the assignments. And uh, he was very, very kind to me. And um, I think as a singer, you know, oral skills was something that I always just went to because I was like, oh yeah, 
I'm good at sight reading. I'm, you know, I, I think I can do that. I have the immediate instrument that just goes like, this is what it is, you know? Um, I like realized I wasn't that good at sight reading. You know, there are some people who just immediately look at a full score and they are like, this is what it sounds like in their head. And they know, and I'm, I'm not that. Um, but I definitely, um, I, I feel like, the skill sets that people have when they're able to just look at a score and say, this is, uh, this is exactly um, what this should sound like before hearing anything. I'm in awe of that. I'm in awe of pianists who can take this machine with these 88 things and then like just make magic with it. And then I'm like, well, let me sing this line on top. You know, like it's a, it, it seems like it's a weird, I, we do this every day, but it seems like it's a mistake serious sort of activity that we're when we make music together on these instruments that I don't know how to play and I would never even start to play anything besides a piano but like it's a I, I think there's what's cool about music theory is that people who do it well are kind of breaking down that magic and really being like this is really like what's going on when you're looking at a piece of music um I don't think I'm a the greatest musician ever, but I think that I've learned a lot of music, a lot of different styles, a lot of different languages. And I think I can incorporate, you know, that learning that I had in, in theory, um, on the stage, you know, on an operatic stage and, um, in concert. Yeah, I agree with every single thing you said there. And I will tag on that this semester, some of my students that we did final projects, um, uh, where they wrote character themes and some of them chose only to write for C instruments because they were so afraid of transposing anything and getting out of their comfort zone by even one inch, you know, um, I think next semester I'm going to require them to get out of their comfort zone and say, not just something that you don't play, but like, you know, if you, are a flute player and you write for oboe okay that's nice but then how about a flute player and writing for clarinet in b flat and being able to understand like you said being able to actually break down that magic and taking the time in theory class with a mentor right there to say hey you know what your clarinet part is actually one step off you need to move that you know to the correct line such a valuable experience breaking it down and kind of building that into into the class, into the theory class is, is huge. I, lo I love doing stuff like that. Do you, have you all, I'm sorry. So my question for you all is, have, am I the first singer who's been on here? Uh, no, we've, we actually had Jennifer Youngs, who yes, okay. um, actually, <laughs> this is the, the, the last episode. So this is, we've had like two singers in a row. And amazing. so nice. amazing, yeah. right. And yeah. so, yeah. So, but, and we've had um, a number of folks who have choir backgrounds mm -hmm. um, um, and kind of have some experience singing, but they're not, you know, making a living with their voice and like, you okay. know, just yeah. people, people listening to their voice, you know, right. um, there, there's this teaching element and things like that. Um, I think some of the most like brilliant minded uh, singers are the ones who are doing ensemble and chamber music because some of that stuff is just so it's um, there's a wonderful beauty in the tedium, you know, that's, it's difficult to do, but as an opera singer, a lot of times we're like, um, how do I get the most amount of sound? Uh, I don't know what's happening necessarily in the pit, but I know that it sounds kind of like this and I'm going to scream over it basically. And there's uh, uh, there's a lot when you get to the final result of, of opera that is so fulfilling when you know exactly what's what's happening in the pit and you know that you know what this oboe is going to play on one I'm going to come in on three and we're going to be together mm -hmm. <laughs> it, and a lot of times you you don't get that luxury whether or not it's a fast rehearsal period whether or not you only have one zitz probe a zitz probe is the rehearsal before the opera where you just rehearse with the voices and uh, and the orchestra and you're not doing any of the staging or anything. Um, and so it's kind of a, it's an amazing experience when you get to have that, like, Oh, this is, this is what I'm hearing and what I can uh, understand from this piano vocal score that I've been looking at only, you know? Um, and then it's, it's really nice also when you know a full score and you know, like, Oh, you know, in this Rossini thing, I know that the horns finally come in here and then I'm going to hear, 
you know, two more measures of strings and then I come in. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to talk about music theory. No, that's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's right there. It's, it's being able to look at a full score and knowing what those instruments are, knowing what they sound like, where do you fit in with that texture? And then it's like, you know, the aural skills piece, you know, singing in tune. I mean, that's obvious, like, but like, (laughs) that's how you tell the really good singers, the ones that sing in tune, right? (laughs) Yep. Yep. I mean, it's, it's funny. It it doesn't come just like a a normal thing. Yeah. Oh, Mm -hmm. everybody sings in tune here. Well, you know, (laughs) Have Sometimes. you heard our sight singing exams? <laughs> we've all had sight singing exams in the past two weeks. Yeah. And we've heard a lot of out of tune singing, but you like, you've got to have every pitch right on and you've got to tune with all these different instruments. It's not just with the piano, like, but it's like with an oboe and then maybe mm-hmm. it might be with the strings a measure later and things like that. Mm-hmm. I was really lucky to perform with, um, to perform at the Met, Thomas Otis's uh, newest opera. Opera, The Exterminating Angel. Um, Thomas Otis is known for, you know, he, he wrote The Tempest probably about 10 years ago, and he has um, Powder Her Face is another one from even before that. Really amazing new music. Uh, very, I don't want to say English. Yeah, it's very English in style as far as that's concerned. But this, uh, this score, you know, there was, uh, um, there was a part for an owned instrument, and there was all sorts of only percussion happening, and we just had to like, choose a note and go <laughs> sort of situation. But there was a lot of like, here's my note uh, two pages earlier. I'm going to hold this in my head and maybe I'm going to hum it a few times in the middle of this phrase that's happening. And then I'm just going to come in. Um, there is, there's definitely a wonderful sort of uh, relief when you don't have to do that after a while. And that performance practice of knowing like, okay, uh, this is all going to come together uh, because I've, I've realized what's happening um, in the orchestra with me, then there's, there's a big relief. It sounds, it feels really good that when it sounds right, you know. Isn't Exterminating Angel the one that has like the highest note ever sung in an opera or something like that? I feel like there was a big news story about it. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a, a flat. Oh my gosh, you're going to ask me the numbers. No, it's okay. There are different systems. Whatever anyway. that. Whatever that. But high, I think it's an A flat six. To those of you who are thinking of the six. numbers, I think it was an A flat six. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. That's insanely that's high. Um, yeah. It's crazy yeah. high, and it's yeah. like not uh, not like something easy for people to do, and not everybody can do it. But Audrey <laughs> Luna is the name of the soprano, and she's amazing, and she she did it, and. Uh, it was such an incredible show. It was one of those, um, the story is super weird and the music went along right along with that. <laughs> um, it was a great experience, very, very rewarding. And um, I'm really happy to have been a part of it. And he's writing some amazing operas and hopefully there will be like a few more in his lifetime. I also just this last summer did uh, John Corleano's The Lord of Cries, um, which is a um, mixture of uh, the, the Dracula story uh, with an old Greek play. Um, and so it, it was a, a wonderful kind of melange of styles and of language and of uh, especially, you know, vocalism happening was really, really cool. And uh, I had to do a few screams that I had to uh, start on a sung pitch and then I had to end at a, at a, a yell. And then I had to just know where this certain B flat was and like all of these wonderful little tricky things vocally that I got to do that I think sometimes when you watch an opera, you're just seeing, you're seeing, you're taking in so much, you're seeing and hearing things and you don't realize like how many times I had to practice a scream and then sing a B flat. <laughs> I think I've actually heard that in sight singing exams before. Yeah. I, I bet you have. <laughs> There's more crying, <laughs> screaming and crying. <laughs> than the cry. Right? Than exactly. the cry. Now, did, now, did your um, theory experience train you, expose you much to like 20th and 21st century music? That's, you know, one of the, the common themes is how much, 
we focus on you know, common practice music and theory and trying to branch out and get into more contemporary things. In your own theory kind of education, was it primarily focused on kind of common practice music? Um, did you get much into kind of 20th century or maybe even like early, early music, right? Stuff that you're you know doing a lot now, especially with your uh, the contemporary opera. I definitely didn't. I didn't sit there and decide to learn about theory of 21st century or 21st and 20th century music. Um, I really was just doing the assignments, <laughs> um, but I, I definitely um, quickly realized that that is something that I needed a lot more experience with. And I do, I'm very happy that I was able to work on some of the projects that I had to work on and, and learn through them. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, like, it's it's kind of a skill set, again, that I think more choral musicians get because they are singing more contemporary music that that requires, like, a very finite amount of time of rehearsal. And then you have to be doing all the ensemble rehearsal. Uh, that's, that's very difficult. Meanwhile, like, I can sit in a practice room by myself and just clunk out notes over and over and over again. And I can get kind of like a relative pitch idea of some things to do. And... Um, and, you know, I have words and staging to really kind of help me out also. Um, the, the last two contemporary things did, the composer is also there. So that also helps in the experience is that you can actually speak to people who, are, who have written the music and you can ask for help. You can ask for, um, you know... I, I hadn't had, I don't think I asked for any changes, but if that was necessary, I think that's actually something that should be, you know, that, that should be uh, normalized. <laughs> His composer is saying, yeah, okay, we can, we can change a few things here. If it's either not comfortable vocally, or it's something that's just really, really difficult to, to learn or memorize or, you know, whatever it is. Well, it sounds like you've used quite a bit from your music theory experiences, but we have to probe a little bit further and ask you what you're not really using or what do you think that you know, here we are in our core teaching or our, even our graduate theory teaching, what is it that we could skip or that you found yourself looking back and thinking, you know what, if I would have skipped the unit on X, right. I would have been okay still. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, being a singer, I just really wish I had so much more time on the keyboard, you know, and I had, I wish I was, I definitely passed the proficiency and I wasn't bad, but I really wish that somebody said, you're going to really want to have, whether you're in the classroom, uh, whether you are going to be a performer. I mean, every chamber group should also be able to like have somebody who just like, Oh yeah, here's, here's what's missing. We should, we can play this all together. But I mean, I think the piano is such a skill. I really wish I had for myself and for my colleagues. I wish that that was something I could do a lot better. Um, and I mean, it was a few years ago <laughs> that Dr. Valentine taught my theory class, but I, I mean, like a lot of the, um, I don't regret any of it. That's for sure. I really am glad that I had those experiences, but some of the things I just, I, I wish I could apply like directly to, okay, this chord is what I'm going to hear. So I do write down, like if there's difficulty to, to um, learn things, I do write down chords. Uh, and a lot of times it's not like, Oh, here's a one chord and it's E flat, you know, like I definitely am doing like, okay, here's the E flat. And then we're going to go to A flat minor and then we're going to go to, to this random G and then there's going to be a something seven. And that's definitely something that I need for my own practice because I'm like having to sing these fast German words on top. So I just know that these are the chords I can play underneath me rather than like trying to play all of the Strauss vocal line. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, it's uh, it, th those sorts of experiences, but that's also comes with more keyboard skill too. You know, there's a few really amazing uh, singers out there. I don't, I don't know if you all have ever encountered a soprano named Erin Morley. She's got some YouTubes out on social media where she accompanies herself while singing, you know, Sophie and De Rosenkavalier by Strauss, playing Strauss perfectly and then singing perfectly. And I'm like, 
what is your brain doing at this? Like, how does your brain even move? I'm good with maybe these two fingers, one on each hand. And if I can like find them, I'm like, yeah, all right. You know, like I'm, I think I am the best pianist ever, but like Erin Morley, look her up. She's amazing. She, she's also like one of the best sopranos in the world. And uh, I, I'm just in awe of people who can like make beauty on the mission and perform with it too and it, a lot of that is taking the brain and being like is making sure that you have like your brain on two different things at one time and she's really good at that yeah the the brain on two different things you know so much of what we're doing is like this is is um is mental and it's being able to prioritize right from it's like sight singing where you like you're not having to think about what the solfege is and the pitch and the rhythm or you know dictation where you're like having to think about chunking and you know you can't have to think of everything so you have to break things into it and even i mean i'm thinking about you know my music ed students they have to be able to sing and play while they're also managing students i got music therapy students they have to be able to sing and play while they are working with a hospice patient you know (laughs) or or dealing with these you know uh, medical professionals um and i think that's something that students don't realize is that the skills that they're learning have to become so internalized that they don't have to think about them. It doesn't have to be, that's, that's not the hard part. The hard part is, you know, you have to then act and do all this stuff on stage. You're not having to think, well, how to pronounce that German word or what? I mean, there's all these Mm -hmm. other things. And that I think students don't really realize that, well, if they get this bare minimum ability, that's enough. But in the real world, that's, that has to be second nature, right? Right. I think what's uh, in this, again, this class yesterday, um, there were collaborative pianists who were talking to other collaborative pianists and they were saying, well, the baseline is just being good at piano. That's just the baseline. <laughs> and I was kind of like, Oof, that's hard to tell a singer. Like, you just have to be a good singer. You know, you have to have your technique together. You just have to like, and that's a very hard thing to just tell people you're constantly working on your technique. You're constantly going to be changing things. Your body's going to be changing. Your voice is changing. So with that, the theory, like learning about how to be a good, uh, sight reader, how to be, uh, a good, uh, make sure to be able to read, uh, notes from the page, make sure to be, to be a good musician. Those are kind of like the base. And then like you're saying, you have to have the rest of the things, on top of that, because you are constantly in, in two modes, you're following conductor while you're acting and trying to be in the moment on stage and you're dealing with languages and you're dealing with a costume and you're, you know, there's, there's, there's a whole lot more. I can only imagine, you know, same thing with music education students. They're, they're dealing with uh, so many levels of things all at once. I think sometimes the communication skills are like the one thing you just have to work right toward. And then you're missing all of, then you're forgetting about like, Oh, I don't, I forgot what this chord was when I was playing this song, you know? And that's, it's a, it's a a very interesting thing to realize that we're all multitasking so much. Yeah. I think one of the ways that I've grown as a teacher across the years is that I used to try to help my students focus on one thing, especially in oral skills. And now I intentionally force them to do more than one thing at a time, like to count, you know, one line with their, they'll, you know, speak a rhythm with their mouth, but also clap a different one with their hands. Or um, I do something called eyes ahead where I'll put melodies on the board in PowerPoint, but they're never looking at the measure that they're singing or um, I'll do echo singing where I'm singing the next line while they're singing back the line that I just sang to me. <clears throat> and they're also having to figure out the solfege because I don't give it to them. I just sing like Lulu, Lu, you know. Um, so things like that. I also I never if we're doing if I let them practice for something, I tell them they should all practice out loud and no one's allowed to leave the room. So if we're doing duets or something like that, then everyone is practicing the duet at the same time with other duets going at the same time in other keys and things like that. And they often are like, oh, this is the worst. Why can't we just go out in the hall? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. do you know how many times in my career as a musician, I have had to focus on what I'm going to do for an audition or for a performance or for whatever with all sorts of craziness going on around me? It's a skill Mm -hmm. you have to build. It's something Mm -hmm. you have to be able to do. 
So I think that's a, something we've never really talked about before, but I think that's a really good and important skill. And there are ways to help students develop it, especially in oral skills. Right, right. And really, like, the, I used to think that being a good musician, being a good music, being good at music theory, being um, good at sight reading was a very natural thing. And um, just like being a good performer, being a good singer, especially, it is all about how much work you're putting into it. And really, it takes an immense amount of time. And some people, it takes way longer than others. And it's just a matter of like how you are, how you're efficiently using those skills and how you're like how you're also um, like changing up the things that you're doing in order to to make the skill honed even more. It's a yeah, it's quite a process. I don't think myself as somebody who is great at new music, but somehow I've been a part of these new operas and I'm like, Oh, okay. I can do this. And I think a lot of it is I know how to prepare beforehand. And then I know how to really ask for help. (laughs) Also, you know, like there's, there's sometimes when you have to go to a coach and you're just like, all right, let me show you what I've done and tell me if this is something that I, that like, helps that that will help in the long run and sometimes you also have to go to the conductor and just say i need this cue and i need this like i'm going to need to hear this in the orchestra is that going to be something that i can get or what you know these are all things that i never you know growing up quote unquote growing up i never thought that that was like necessary but it really is you have to ask for help (laughs) and a lot of times it's just so that you can be better for the next time Yeah. That collaborative aspect. I mean, that's one thing I'm hearing as you're speaking is just like your ability to collaborate and work with others is, is critical, you know, to your success in your, in your undergraduate experience or in your, in your graduate experience, did you have, did you seek those types of collaborative experiences as well? Um, Or is that something that you kind of had to learn once you got out there and like, okay, I need to make money. How do I do this? I need to collaborate. Yeah. I mean, when you're a singer, you'd never do anything acapella, you know, it would be weird. <laughs> so <laughs> everything is, is an art song recital and you have to do all of your, um, you have to do all of your performances with somebody else. And it makes that, that bond between you and your collaborative pianist is a huge deal. There's a lot of trust and a lot of respect needs to happen. Respect for time and respect for each other's abilities. You know, like there, that's the thing you have to kind of, you have to go in with all the ideas and then also be able to take all the ideas. And then you make something that's really fun. And like I said, I am amazed when I watch pianists sit down at the machine and are just like incredible at it. I think it's magical. And then a lot of pianists have no idea how we make the noises that we make because we, we have different things that we are good at. And that's what's kind of awesome. The, the like technical side of it is that you have to realize how to be a good communicator. You have to realize how to like, how to have those expectations for each other. And that's maybe sometimes where people kind of fall short, where it's really difficult. If you're not able to communicate and you know your need for oh i would love this to go faster because i can't make it i don't have enough breath or i would love to like slow this down because i know this that this would be so much more um so much easier um or sometimes like you know you've you've heard something and you see a pianist and they're using the pedal a lot you know what i mean like maybe can we try it super dry let's try that you know and i want all of that from my pianists too. You know, I, I love to take things and be like, oh, let me try this color out. Let's try this vowel a little different and see what happens. Um, I think that experience is what is really fun about making music is that you can play together. And then with opera, it's like a whole new level because you have like eight singers on the stage sometimes and you're just all playing, you know, and you're trying to like, you're you've taken all this stuff that you've worked on and then you're trying to have fun with each other, which is really great. Now, I think we're about 40 minutes in. So it's my time to make my confession that opera is probably one of my, uh, what, how do I say it? 
I don't know very much about it. And I had, I had, (laughs) I've had, I've had my love hate relationship with it. I'm going to be just, I'm going to be honest. I'm just going to be honest. All right. I got it. Um, I get it. You know, I've, I've, I've left, um, I've left an opera after the second act because we had to get home just because like, we know that she dies at the end and we had to get watch our kids <laughs> and then we have to drive. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, but I think yeah. one of, one of the, the challenges, and I mean, I'm, you know, I grew up as a pianist, um, you know, I, um, and I think one of the things is that, especially as a theory, a, a theory, a theory teacher is there's not a lot of opera lit, out there in our theory textbooks. Um, And so could you maybe give us some ideas on maybe some opera, like not maybe operas and maybe even like pieces that you're like, this would be a great thing to put into a theory class just to kind of Mm -hmm. expose, you know, students to the genre, because unfortunately so much of our lit is piano music, maybe chamber music, um, an art Mm -hmm. song. We'll have, you know, Schubert or Schumann in there. Um, but very rarely do we have much in, in the way of um, opera, unless it's maybe like a, a something from Handel or maybe a Mozart uh, aria, but that's right. basically it. Right. Yeah, I, um, so let me tell you a story. I felt really, really smart. <laughs> I was in Valencia, Spain, and I was walking down and there was this garage door that was painted and it had, it had two staves and it had, uh, it had four notes on them. It was a chord. And they say, if you know this, you went to school to, oh, I wish I knew, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess up the quote, but it was like, you, uh, you went to school too long if you know this. And I was like, that's the Tristan chord. Number one, I felt- A plus, A plus, yes. Okay, so <laughs> for my picture, I'm going to send that picture to you because it is, it's literally, I'm like, oh my gosh, this makes me the nerdiest thing because- that thing is making fun of people like us who are like super, like we, we study this stuff and we're like, Oh my gosh, what is this? Well, number one, the Tristan chord is always really fun. And I was in Tristan and Isolde in at the, the lyric opera of Chicago for my, it was like my second year, I guess, in the program. And I was like the, the sailor. Right. And Okay, this is another like name droppy story. Deborah Boy was like downstage and singing and then Greg Grimsley and I had to like climb this thing. And I was done because the shepherd, this sorry, the sailor only sings like the very beginning, all a cappella, by the way. So I need everybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're still listening, to listen to the beginning, the obviously the overture of Tristan, and then go to the next one, which is- We all stop, like, actually. We only listen to the overture, unfortunately. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> At least so. the, the theorists do. They listen to the overture, get the Tristan chord, and then, <laughs> but then you're right <laughs> after that. <laughs> that is, um, that is too bad because the sailor song is really good. It's about, 45 seconds is not much, right? Like six phrases, whatever, but it's all acapella. And I gave myself panic attacks about this thing because I was like, I'm not going to be in tune when, when this orchestra comes right back in with and plays the chord right after me, right? And I'm like, I'm going to mess up the entire show. And it had, it's just started, you know? And uh, I did it right every time, every time. I was so, I, I felt like such an accomplished singer at that point. And there's a recording out there somewhere. And now I need to find that. Um, but anyway, the, uh, I don't know why I started that. I was trying to talk myself up. Tristan chord, really fun, but listen to the whole thing and just be like, look how difficult this would be if you had to sing this 45 second solo in, a, you know, totally in silence after that amazing overture and then have to like start off the show before everybody starts this story so um there was that and then i also this the 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 set for this show was that i couldn't leave the stage until the end of the first act which is a hour 20 minutes something like that so i like had to take magazines (laughs) and i like stuffed them underneath the stage and i'd like hid under there on the stage of lyric opera chicago for like an hour and 20 i was just like this was before I, I, you obviously couldn't take your phone out there. And I like, so I would just read. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. Um, okay. So the Tristan chord, that's really fun. I really like 
as far as like form is concerned, I think that like Mozart operas are most amazing things ever, the best music theater for their time. And that the fact that they've lasted this long, I think like some of the recitatives into arias of uh, both Cosi Fan Tutte, which is going to happen in Dallas Opera in the spring, uh, but Notte di Figaro, The Marriage of Figaro, definitely like I um, I think that's, I mean, just looking at the form and maybe some of the chord structure, but I don't like know anything else. <laughs> but those are some of my favorite things and thinking like, how did Mozart come up with this? Uh, it's amazing. I think one of the neat things about looking at those Mozart arias is how he uses the harmonies and certain melody notes to express the lyrics that express those, that text. And I think that's another cool thing that we sometimes miss. Uh, we've talked about this with analyzing Bach chorales. When we take the lyrics out of something, we miss so much of what the composer is actually trying to do. And I think in, in operas and those things, I think that's a, a way we can get in and help those students get excited about it because what they're doing musically to express that text is so interesting and so cool. Yeah, I, I mean, that's exactly what it is. The music theory of it comes from when the words and the music sound exactly like what you have in your head. And then obviously, you know, we've had these old productions that we have seen for many, many years. And you're realizing like the genius of somebody inventing these things before that you could see this action happening on stage. And that's exactly the way it's, it's supposed to look the way it sounds, you know? Um, yeah, that's, that's, it's magical. It's really, that's a stupid word, but it's kind of magical. And I totally understand the, you know, only wanting to go to two thirds of an opera because she long, operas are long, but if you were like, okay, a, an opera ticket I can get for like, you know, if you want a real fancy one, that's different. But if you just want a normal, normal ticket, you're going to go for like 40 bucks, right? Like you're going to have a full evening of entertainment and you can really like kind of milk that because <laughs> you're also getting theater, you're getting music, you're getting dancing, you're getting big ensembles, you're getting very intimate uh, scenes. There's so much happening for with opera. And I guess that's why you need four and five hours for it sometimes. Yeah, it's a great point. I would not consider myself an opera expert whatsoever, but I did present on an opera at the Society for Music Theory, Fidelio. So if anyone wants to check out my Fidelio stuff that's listening, I will share and I'll give a shameless plug. Um, but I'm not an expert and we decided to trim it down and really only talk about three three arias. But I love Don Pizarro uh, as a character there. Oh my goodness. There's yeah. so much there in that aria. I know it's not a tenor. Aria. No, so haven't done it, but He's I, showed, I showed a little bit of bits and pieces of that, even just for like, you know, an augmented second interval paired with like this villainous character, you know, that's like about social injustice. I mean, it's relevant. It's relevant. Um, and uh, I think that would be a cool thing to share too. You know, I'm kind of mm -hmm. interjecting and answering Paul's question too. But I think that one's a cool one. And I don't think a lot yeah. of people play that one that often. So I think it deserves a little bit more emphasis. It's really, personally. It's really Beethoven's only opera. And it's about, it's getting done. I mean, obviously the, the anniversary I think was last year or maybe it was 1920. Um, and it it's getting done so much more because it's about like the human condition basically. And it's like one of the first operas that showed this heroine character who dressed up like a man to save her love who's a man who was in jail and like it was groundbreaking because you were talking about a woman who was going to save humanity and eventually like you know the the you had to get Don Pizarro the mean guy out of the out of the way before you could get like the resolve of uh of everybody and like the hope that happens at the end the final the final chorus and scene is so stunning I um I was I was in that excuse me as I dropped this name I was in that at the <laughs> at the Met and um, it's on iTunes if you want to tune into that <laughs> but I was playing Yakino who is the um, the like the police guard who's kind of under Don Pizarro you know and uh, he basically is being told like 
he's he's in love with um, he's in love with Martellina, who's in love with Fidelio, but Fidelio's really Leonora, a woman. So then that's also weird, you know. It's uh, and there's a quartet. It's so wunderbar. Do you do that? It's a it's a fugue style, and it is exquisite music. It's one, it's one of yeah, one of the best. I think Fidelio's not done or wasn't done that often because Beethoven is just freaking hard to sing. Like I yes. just did Beethoven nine, and the, our our the guy rehearsing us was like. In my experience, choirs love to perform Beethoven nine, but they hate to rehearse it. And that is yes. spot on correct. Yes. It is so hard. I mean, you would come home and just be like, I feel like I went to the gym. Like yeah. it is such a workout to sing Beethoven. It's so high and it just lasts forever. The end of the ninth has, this is, excuse me, I don't know what, like, I don't know what kind of chord it is, a big C chord I'm assuming. <laughs> for literally five minutes it's yes. the same chord and i'm just like okay are you done okay are you done <laughs> yes it's, no it's not done it just goes on and on, on, and, on. and on and you're always yeah. at the limits of your range and you're just living there and yeah. hanging out there like it's not yeah. you go there for a second and then come back no you just hang out there at the limits of your range <laughs> And if you are moving around, it's all fast and ridiculous, but it's amazing music and it's really fun to sing. And audiences yeah. love it. I think especially Go coming in, yeah, coming out of COVID, like this was the first, one of the first ones that we've done um, where the hall was almost full. Um, and because mm. we were tested and vaccinated and all those things, we were able to sing without masks. With and masks just, good, yeah. yeah, and the audience response was incredible to that piece and I think you know, some of it is just that it stretches you to your limits. They, it's like they can feel that in the audience yeah. as well. Yeah. And really, I, I think, again, the good, the good ones set the text really well, too. So then when, you know, you're talking about Freud and joy over and and, um, and you keep hearing these sopranos be like, like <laughs> the entire time, you're like, oh, this is really joyful, even though they're kind of, you know, in pain a little bit sometimes. I, it is like a, uh, yeah, Beethoven is a lesson in perseverance. Like he's the, I think for singers, it's just about like being as, uh, being about stamina, you know? And, but still there's such like beauty within it that people, people are, are touched by it because it is really, it's the best mix of music and text together. Yeah, that piece has been become like the, I don't know, the anthem of the world. It, it's just kind of look at back at like how often it's been used for for so many different things. Is that 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 final uh, ode to joy chorus? And I mean, there mm -hmm. is there is something powerful when you have, and the same thing with opera, right? When you have this massive array of instruments, you have these singers just yelling, <laughs> like singing mm -hmm. their hearts out, right? Um, it's awe-inspiring, right? When you, when you see that, and then there's a, there's a chorus there, and then every, the, the spectacle about it, it really is, I mean, it's it's amazing. And it does, it is kind of life-affirming, you know, when you see all of that together in person. It's not on a screen. It's like you're literally in the same room, you know, experiencing with everyone. And you're not mic'd, right? And so, I mean, right. it's, 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 it's yeah. really amazing. Yeah. I'm warming up to opera. Good. Maybe, <laughs> maybe Cozy Fantute in the spring. Yeah, I, 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 I'm definitely, I'm definitely game for it. And good, so, good, good. Do you want to hear a warm, sexy tenor? <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. I cannot wait. <laughs> oh, geez. I cannot. My mom, my mom sent me a, a picture of that, of, of the, uh, the pamphlet. And I was like, I haven't, I obviously don't read it, but but I, it's actually going to be a really great cast and that production is really charming and it, it makes it it makes the story go by fast it's nice yeah and like i said that opera has some of the most amazing musical moments i love performing in it and i think a lot of times the audience has to be really patient because our 2022 you know attention spans are very different from you know 18th century opera goers who had who like got to go eat meals in the middle of the opera <laughs> don't we wish those days were back oh my i mean gosh. i think 
I think the first time I saw Marriage of Figaro uncut, where they did the entire thing, I got home at like two in the morning. It is yep. just so long. It's like four and a half hours long. Yep. It is truly very long, but I, it was fun. It was worth it. The first thing I saw at the Met was Marriage of Figaro. And I stood in standing room for four acts. I never sat down. It was full. It was amazing. That's a true test of stamina right there. Right there. There you go. <laughs> Beethoven and Mozart standing room. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I saw at the Met was you and Barbara of Seville. Just oh, really? Yeah, that's the first uh, time I'd ever been there. It was very cool. Yeah. So. Was that the performance when I kicked the pillow into the pit? Because that happened. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember you doing that. So probably not, but... Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Every day I was like, I'm never going to get hired back. <laughs> where did it land? It landed in the seat it, that where the guitarist was and the guitarist had already, had already gone. So like literally it landed like, boop. so that and worked I out. Went, it worked out fine. <laughs> slash. I was really terrified. And I was like, yeah, Peter Gelp is going to call me and I'm going to get fired. And um, that'll be it. <laughs> everything was fine i went back <laughs> i'm sure you're not the first person to accidentally kick something in that something pit. fell in yeah Oof. yeah yeah it's I, I i mean i definitely there's like that extra pressure of being there were you there for opening night like the first one i think no maybe, maybe. Anyway, or closing. Was, no i think it was closing it was okay so yeah i mean there was it was a magical experience because I knew everybody. I'd have worked with everybody in the cast before, which never happens. And going to a gig, you know, being a freelance performer is like, it's just a managing expectations, you know, like, okay, I don't know who this soprano is, but we're going to have to like get to know each other real quick. Cause we're going to have to make out three times. And we're going to, you know, like sing these high, long, high notes forever. But that cast was awesome because everybody was really funny and really fun. And I knew them all. And so like, I couldn't have asked for a better situation. And, um, and then I kicked the pill in the pit. <laughs> oh, this is, this has been such a treat, David, to get to chat with you and get to hear your thoughts and, and, and share your experiences with us. And so, but we have to let you go. Cause we know that you're a freelancer and so time is money. And so hey. <laughs> I, I have one hour for lunch and I got to go back to a, a class about collaborative piano. <laughs> but before we let we, we uh, let you go, we like to kind of ask just some rapid fire questions. Just, okay. just some um, real short, you know, hot takes. On are there points number um there can be yeah we can we can have a point system if, if you'd like and so ben do you have a do you have a 300 point system 300 point question for jen i have a question i don't know if it's All 300 right. points and it's not even related to music theory but i'm just curious what is the craziest thing you've ever had to do in an opera on stage oh my god oh my god okay um <clears throat> craziest i definitely just finished this performance this uh production of a midsummer night's dream it's by benjamin Britten, and it was a production by laurel pelly and he had done the play before in french and he had never done the opera and you know opera you have like you start singing here and you end here and that's what happens but in a play you can take your time with the text and you can do all the stuff. So this whole production was basically like, what's going to happen? Every, I was one of the four lovers, the, you know, there's, there's four lovers in the play. And I had to run on stage with a rolling bed and then jump on the bed and sing my first line. And the, the soprano was going to catch the bed. And while it was rolling toward her right down stage, and then roll me back. And um, I almost died like four times. No big deal. It's fine. Everybody's okay. But definitely it was like a fun, like, oh, oh this is a skateboard experience. <laughs> let's like, let's try this out a couple of times this way. And let's try, you know, like, let me aim directly downstage and see what happens. Let me aim stage right a little more. Um, I had such a friggin' blast. But at the time I definitely was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to roll off the stage anytime here. Um, that's not a very good one. I'm going to think of another one and I'll probably call you and tell you a better one, Jen. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty good one. I, I think yeah. that would be pretty amazing to watch that happen in, in, in real life. <laughs> so, <It was> fun. 
That's worth right, at least 200 points. That, yeah, I think so. I think oh. that is, yeah, that's 200, 250 <laughs> right there. Excellent. All right. Okay. So my question for 400 points is since you're at, since you're at a, um, an art song conference, um, what is one art song or song cycle that you think um, should be taught in theory classes? Very good. Uh, Definitely Beethoven, talking about Beethoven again, Beethoven's Andi Ferniger Liebte. Mm. It is the quote unquote first art song cycle because um, nobody really did multiple songs that were written together, you know, multiple poems that were written together. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one because it is six pieces all put together and they are linked. They actually like go from one to another which is another thing that doesn't really happen. Not really. Uh, there's not really a Schubert one. There's not really any Schumann that does that. Um, but Andi Fernigalipta, really great. And there's some really magical moments. Again, some of them linked really well with the text. The text, however, is a little bizarre. It's a little difficult. It's a little non-dramatic. And so that's another layer of like difficulty for the, for the performer. But I think for the audience, they really get into it because it's all love songs and it's basically like about love for about 12 minutes. <laughs> so it's also attainable. <laughs> Short's also good. That's great. That's great. Right. 500 points for that one. <laughs> Am I going to make it a thousand Ben? Yes, I think you are. Yes. This is an open-ended question. So I think it's a softball for 1000. We'll say. Oh yeah. Okay. Here's mine. A really talented opera singer comes into my office. They're struggling with music theory. What do you tell them? What's your best advice? Mm. Okay, so yesterday I just heard this bit of advice. And uh, it's kind of like if you, you know how people who really love baseball are the people who play it, right? So I would think that it might not be the same thing, but if you really want to know more about theory, like about uh, analyzing exact the music, you have to kind of make the music. So I would say like start composing some things, you know what I mean? Like, like seeing if a singer is interested in composing and at least writing down lines, like say, pick a pop song that you really like, even, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or pick an aria and listen to it only, and then do, that's your notation. Or uh, find some sort of music that you actually want to uh, notate, because that's the kind of thing that will connect you directly to the activity. I don't know if that makes sense. I think it does. Yeah, that's what I would find say. Find the inspiration, find what gives you the energy to overcome the hurdles, because it's only just a process to getting towards that understanding. And that's what theory should be. I think a lot of us would agree with that. It's like, it's a gateway to understanding different music. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, sometimes it becomes more of a, a blockade than anything else. And we don't want it to, we don't want right. that to, to be the case. And a lot of times like theory, that blockade is like, just it's one part of the learning experience. And like, like I said, I think the most, the people, the best people, I'm sorry, the best musicians are the ones who are the most curious are the ones who are always learning new music and always figuring things out, uh, new things out. And that's kind of the, like, as far as when I was young, I kind of thought like, Oh, once you know stuff, you just know stuff and then you just do it you know? And I like, I know nothing. Like I, I know what I've done. And so I can like use that, but I don't really know anything, <laughs> you know, like I, I tell people like, if I didn't do what I do, I have no real skills. <laughs> and I have to like, I, I, I think <laughs> a lot of it is like feeling like you're bumbling around a little bit, but with music theory, it, it just seems like um, you all seem like delightful people, but a lot of times theory professors are daunting you know because there's a they're smart and they know the music and they know you know they they know what they're doing and uh, you have to like mess up a whole lot and some people don't like messing up especially musicians who are type a like me <laughs> <laughs> performers and singers you know <laughs> yeah i i love that i love that 
advice just to be curious because so many students are afraid to be curious to to put themselves out there and then and then the, the fact that you know you never get you never uh, once you leave the kiddie pool you just keep going into the deep end and you never get out of it right <laughs> and yep. i think that's really yep. helpful for for folks to hear you know professionals who are doing it you know that are living the dream unquote unquote that being like I don't, you know, I mean, I'm still learning. I don't know a lot of stuff. <laughs> I, yeah. I feel less confident about what I knew, what I know now than what I did 10 years ago. And I mean, that's, right. that's a growing musician and that's, that's kind of what it takes, right? Not this like uber confidence, just this openness to new ideas. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. 12,000 points. I think that that last one, I mean, clearly knocked it out of the park. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, this so it's such a pleasure. Oh yeah. And so just as we, as we close out, maybe just let, I mean, people have been listening to your warm, sexy tenor this past hour. Uh, let our listeners know um, where people can f- uh, find you uh, online and mm-hmm. maybe what you have coming up uh, next. Yeah. So, um, my website, which is, she's not fancy. It, 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 my website is davidportiotenor.com. Uh, please take a look. The schedule on there is, uh, updated. Um, so I go this summer to the Bard Festival and sing Strauss's Die Schweigsame Frau for the Summerscape Festival. That'll be the performances. Rehearsal start in June and performances will be at the end of July. And then, the fall is really right now all concert work, which I'm super excited about. Two of them in particular um, handles Jephtha with the uh, music of the Baroque at, at, in uh, Chicago, Illinois. Uh, really great orchestra. And then another really great orchestra, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra in St. Paul, Minnesota, is performing the um, Serenade for Tenor, String and Horns. And I'm the soloist for that. And that's a lifelong piece of music that I wanted to sing. And I'm so excited about that one. And then uh, the spring is all opera. So in Christmas time, I'm back at the Met with the Magic Flute family performances in English. And it's a short one. Paul, this is for you. Um, if you want to go to a short one, it's that's at the Met in the new year and Christmas time. And then... Uh, then we have Austin Opera's The Pearl Fishers and Cozy Fantute in Dallas Opera. So there's two Texas shows, which I'm crazy excited about. And I also have Minnesota Opera. I'm singing La Fille du Regiment, The Daughter of the Regiment, which has the crazy high seas aria. And I'm totally not nervous about that. That is very, that is very ironical because I am very nervous about it, actually. <laughs> So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We will be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye.